Hello and welcome to the Paranormal Sun, coming to you live from Tower Studios. I'm JT, and each week I'll be your tour guide as we explore the unexplained. When you ask people about the modern UFO phenomenon, what are their first comments? Most people will mention Roswell, the Phoenix Lights, or perhaps the recent Pentagon footage. Whatever the case may be, the vast majority of people consider it a U.S.-centric phenomenon, and most of the well-known cases are from the U.S. But make no mistake, my friends, this is a truly global phenomenon. Tonight I will be covering the first UFO flap to involve consistent sightings of humanoid beings associated with UFOs, and then the astounding case of Monsieur Maurice Moss. Good afternoon, everyone. I hope you're doing well wherever you are in the world. I hope my voice finds you happy, healthy, safe. I hope that you got to enjoy some time with people you love this week, got to do some of the things that you've enjoyed. Before I get too far into tonight's program, I just wanted to bring to your attention something that was uh, brought to my attention this week. As we all know, history is a divisive topic. It's something that many people have differing opinions on, and let's not sugarcoat it. There are a lot of people in history that have done some pretty horrific things, people who are now looked upon as heroes by some countries and to some people. Now, in doing some of the quotes for the reincarnation episode last week, I used a term that Winston Churchill ascribed to, and that term is coolie. Now, I knew that term was a bit outdated, but uh, it's actually considered quite offensive to some people, and so for that I do apologize. Look, um, I do not try and sugarcoat the past. What's happened has happened. Again, I am not condoning what was said or the terminology that was used, and if that term offended anyone in the audience, I am sorry. Just to give you a bit of a background of why that term is so offensive, folks, the term coolie uh, initially started out as a term for laborers and especially indentured servants in Southeast Asia and in India. It, the term actually comes from India. Uh, by some people and uh, many groups, uh, it's now considered a racial slur. So again, for that, I do apologize. You know, indentured servitude is not something that was a very positive experience for most people. It allowed them to get uh, into some places, like into America. A lot of the Irish and Scottish were sold into indentured servitude, whereas they would be given transit to the U.S. from the U.K. or from Europe. And oftentimes, the indentured servitude would last anywhere from seven to ten years. So if I have offended anyone, I do apologize. Again, history is not a nice, clean subject. Um, the whole premise of it was not to cause any offense. It was simply to state what someone who is one of the most well-known people in Western Europe and America had to say on to say on the topic of reincarnation. So now that I've covered that over, folks, as I say, the main topic of this program will be the fascinating 1954 UFO flap or UFO wave that was worldwide but seemed to really have a heavy focus in Western Europe and France and Italy in particular. This was the first large-scale group of sightings where humanoid entities were spotted in and around craft, uh, multiple landed craft, very fascinating uh, flap. Now this will then lead into the extremely interesting case of Monsieur Moss in 1965 in France. It's still one of the most talked about and 
one of the most common cases, especially in Europe, that's brought up when people talk about UFOs and proof for something other than, you know, earthly explanations for these things. So it's a very interesting case, and I'll be covering that over in the main segment on this program. So now that I've gotten that out of the way, folks, and I've given you a little bit of an update, as always, I've got the traditional shout outs for you um, and to all the people who really go out of their way to support the program. And it means the world to me. I really do appreciate it. So to Eddie and his family in California, to Adriana and Nico in Texas, to Harry and Lisa in North Carolina, of course, to Nicole and Noel over at the Quite Unusual podcast, to Scott and the Old 77 podcast in Missouri, to Chris Max and Chris's family in Illinois, to the Fidianga tribe, to the Montana family, and last but not least, to my French listeners. Thank you so much, everyone, and everyone who's listening to my voice right now. I really appreciate you taking the time. It's really humbling that you listen to what I have to say every week. So thank you from the bottom of my heart so much. Now, one last special shout out I just wanted to give. One of my more recent listeners is a friend of the show, someone who I've known, uh, who I've worked with in the past, uh, Riaz, who started his own clothing business, uh, Wicked Apparel. So Riaz, thank you very much for listening. I do really appreciate it. Now, folks, I also just wanted to give you a few of the podcasts that I've really enjoyed in the past. As I say, it's not something I cover over every episode, but some of the podcasts that really further my research and thoughts on these topics, especially on the paranormal, the unexplained, are Expanded Perspectives, which is Kyle and Cam out of Texas, which is a great program, a very down-to-earth program. They have some great guests as well. Blurry Photos, which is uh, Dave, Dave Stecco, does an excellent job. Thanks, Dave, for reaching out and supporting the program. It means the world to me. Astonishing Legends, which does a really deep, in-depth uh, study when they do their cases. So they may spend three or four hours on some topics. It's a very thorough program. And whereas I try to be kind of in the middle, you know, you've got shows that cover very lightly topics. They might do a 10-minute segment. I try to give you more along the lines of a half an hour to 45 minutes. Astonishing Legends really pulls out the stop. So if you really want to binge some of these topics, go over and check out that program. Now, a couple other podcasts that have supported the show and that I do really enjoy, uh, quite unusual podcast, uh, Nicole and Noel. Again, thank you so much for supporting the program. And they cover over a lot of the similar topics that I do. So check that one out. And Scott and the old 77. Um, Scott, thanks again. I always appreciate your support and you doing a really good job, really good podcast. So thanks for that. Aside from that, folks, uh, things have been well. I've been binging a few different uh, case studies, uh, especially around UFOs. What I often do is that I find these programs, they tend to come on certain days here uh, in New Zealand on our cable network, and then I'll record them and then I'll watch them when I have time. And there are some that uh, I've already talked about, like I saw a really good coverage on the O'Hare incident. Uh, last night, I watched a good bit about that. There are some cases that I will cover for you in the future uh, that I've seen some of these really good programs on. And then there are some others that uh, I'll be doing some further research on before I decide if I'm going to cover them on the show or not. As always, if there's something that you would like me to cover on the program that I haven't yet, uh, I've got a very extensive list of anywhere from 150 to 200 topics for future shows. I'm always happy to add more if there's something that you would like me to cover, if there's something that you would be interested in. 
send it my direction. You can send it to theparanormalsun at gmail.com. You can get a hold of me on the website. You know where to reach me by now, folks. There's also Instagram and there's also the Facebook group. You can always get a hold of me. You can go in there and, you know, send me a message in the group. You can join any of those groups. If you want to support the show, you can go to the website, to, so www.theparanormalsun.com. You can donate directly in PayPal if you so feel. You can go and support the programs on Patreon. You can just go onto the podcast provider that you use, whether it's Spotify, whether it's Apple. You can go on there and give the show a review. Uh, it all helps, folks. And to the people who have already done this, thank you from the bottom of my heart. I really do appreciate it. I can't see the ratings that the programs get from the U.S. Uh, because Apple is very segmented in the way that it does things. I can only see the New Zealand Apple Store. So thank you very much for those who have already supported me and have already given me reviews. And now, my friends, it's time for the news of the damned. For those of you who don't know, uh, the new listeners and the like, the news of the damned is an ongoing news segment where I cover over at least three topics that fall in the bounds of what I like to discuss on the Paranormal Sun. So for those of you who don't know, uh, Charles Fort is one of my largest influences on being interested in these topics. And Charles Fort was one of the first people who actually took the time to investigate and document these cases and put them into books and publish them so that people could explore some of these unexplained and odd phenomenon. So I like to do my little homage to Charles Fort. That's why it's called the News of the Damned. So the first topic here will be interesting to my listeners in Europe. And this was an article that I saw come across my local news. So this one is titled, It is a Horror. Templar Crop Circle Appears in French Field. Now, this was uh, published by Dan Satherley from the MSM.com, uh, New Zealand section of the news here, about three days ago, so around the 16th of July. And I've seen this come up in other publications since. So this looks like they you know, got it off the Reuters wire. And it says, A massive crop circle that appeared in France has been described as a horror by the family which owns the field it appeared in. Now, when I first heard this, I thought a horror as in, I thought it was a misspelling and I thought they were saying an honor, but they've actually considered it a horror or a problem. And I'll tell you why as we get into this article. So it says the intricate design described as a Templar cross was discovered on July 5th. I noticed that the ears of corn were lying on the ground. Nicolas Benoit told Euro Weekly News, a Spanish newspaper. His father, Gerard, owns the farm located in Vimy, France. I thought someone had damaged my weed overnight, but then I realized it was forming a pattern. He said it was very well done. We've never seen a crop circle before. We've seen it in movies. It's vandalism, but we said to ourselves, it's good for once. Crop circles have been appearing in Europe and the UK for decades, particularly since the 1960s. They, they went international after widespread media coverage in the early 1990s when a pair of British pranksters claimed they were behind the strange phenomenon. There's no scientific evidence they, they are produced by aliens, as some believe. The latest circle shows a cross inside two circles. While Benoit says it resembles the cross used by the ancient Knights Templar group, it also resembles the iron cross used by Nazi Germany and the German Empire in World War I. This is why they consider it a horror. Vimy is in France's northeast, near the border with Belgium, an area ravaged by conflict over the centuries, including during World War I. 
I can feel a lot of energy in the bit where the weed is flattened. I think there is maybe a higher intelligence which makes these crop circles, retired teacher Genevieve Piquet told Reuters after traveling 70 kilometers to see the curious design, but Benoit doesn't believe it. Some people tell us that it is the Templar Cross, the energy flowed from the earth, that our field is blessed and can cure multiple sclerosis. They are crazy. Thousands have reportedly visited the farm over the past week after the family put images of the crop circle on Facebook. They took the pictures down, hoping to quell interest. The circle took about 300, took out 300 square meters of wheat, which were going to be harvested just next week. In the end, it is a horror, Benoit told Euro Weekly News. We are not a museum. The crop circles are beautiful, but for someone else. Since the Vimy Circle, other designs have popped up in the UK's Wiltshire and Dorset areas. Now, folks, crop circles are a very interesting and also a very divisive topic in the paranormal uh, forum. Now, to me, uh, two guys with a board in a in a British pub aren't doing all of these crop circles. I don't know what it is. I don't know where it comes from. I don't have the answers, uh, as does anyone. I will be covering crop circles at some point in the future, but this is a very interesting case. Now, on a scale of 1 to 10 complexity-wise, I would put this one in kind of a 3 or 4. It's not very easy to create this crop circle. However, on the other hand, it's far from as complex as some of the shapes I've seen. It is a very interesting uh, crop circle. I'll probably be taking a snippet of the photo to share on social media in future. And as always, there'll be a link in the show notes. Now, the next one here was sent to me from a friend of the show, Harry, in North Carolina. So thank you, Harry. And this one comes from the, the Guardian.com, which is a UK publication. And this one was from the 17th of July. Now, this one is titled Space Oddity. Mexican group claims alien base offers hurricane protection. Gulf Coast cities have little to fear from extreme weather, thanks apparently to extraterrestrials lurking underwater. And this was from Cody Copeland. Uh, who was publishing from Mexico City. As communities on Mexico's Gulf Coast brace themselves for what is predicted to be a grueling hurricane season, a group of stargazers in the northeastern state of Tampopilas are confident that the unique form of disaster preparation will keep their city safe. And sorry if I butchered that state name, folks. Members of the Association of Scientific UFO Research of Tamaul... Tamaulipas is what it looks like, or ACOT, believe that an interdimensional underwater base of extraterrestrial origin has protected the coastal cities of Ciudad Madero and Tampico from hurricanes for more than 50 years. ACOT's president, Juan Carlos Ramon Lopez Diaz, claims to have visited the base, known as Ampupac, via astral projection, which he says he induced through meditation and a pescatarian diet. For those of you who don't know, pescatarian is like a vegetarian diet, but including fish, just no meat. It's also recommended to ascend astral constructions like temples and pyramids that have stairs at a 45 degree angle, he says. Hills sloping at such a gradient will also do if one doesn't live near pre-Columbian ruins. Ciudad Madero suffered four direct landfalls in the 20th century, including Hurricane Inez in 1966, which killed 74 people in Mexico alone. Lopez and his allies believe that the base was established sometime after that. Explanations of exactly how and why the alien visitors are protecting Ciudad Madero vary, even among fellow investigators. Lopez believes it's not 
Emupak itself, but the esoteric power of ACOT members' belief in the base. The collective mind is charged with this concept, so it generates a large force field of repulsion, he said. There is also talk of magnetic fields and a series of meter-long bars of of an aluminium, iron, and copper alloy secretly buried in the seafloor near Miramar Beach at the suggestion of visitors over four decades ago. Other claims that aliens are only interested in protecting their base and Ciudad Madero is just lucky. They took a liking to the small corner of the galaxy. This theory fails to explain, however, what threat a terrestrial weather event may pose to a structure with no form in our physical dimension. Still others simply have except the apparent inexplicable, says says Marco Flores, the former official historian of Tampico. If science gives us no explanation, we'll get one from magic, he said. Fantasy is always more attractive than reality. The municipal government placed the bust of a green Martian at Miramar Beach in 2013 and officially dubbed the last Tuesday in October the Day of the Martian. The bust was promptly stolen. <laughs> Jamie Masson Mexico's leading chronicler of UFO sightings. Uh, I've heard of Jamie Masson, and he does some good work. And other supernatural events allowed that southern Tampupilas was a hotbed of extra mundane activity, but said he and his team of researchers were previously unaware of Emupac. He did, however, remark that this theory was curious. Dr. Rosario Romaro, a climate scientist at the National Autonomous University of Mexico agreed that Ciudad Madero's streak of hurricane-free weather was interesting, but not that it was inexplicable. He said that Tampopilas is more likely to see less intense tropical storms while broader atmospheric conditions, such as subtropical high-pressure systems and the prevailing westerly winds, tend to push major hurricanes north towards the southern coast of the U.S. Furthermore, although Ciudad Madero has not been struck directly by a hurricane since 1966. It has not escaped damage from others that made landfall elsewhere. In 2013, the city declared a state of emergency after Hurricane Ingrid closed, caused significant flooding. A busy hurricane season does not necessarily portend a high number of landfalls, but Romero cautioned that predictions often turn out to be inaccurate and storms take unexpected turns. So residents of Ciudad Madero and other Gulf Coast communities should take practical hurricane precautions. We now have advanced monitoring systems and numerical models that allow us to predict a storm's intensity and path, but trajectories still vary widely depending on those wider atmospheric conditions, she said. Despite the growing body of climate science to explain weather trends around Ciudad Madero, many of the city still feel advanced faith-based explanations. Still advance faith-based explanations. Sorry, folks. Devout Catholics in the city trust in Our Lady of Mount Caramel, especially her patrons, the sailors who sound their horns at the mouth of the Panuco River as they pass a statue of her, erected curiously enough in 1967. So again, folks, this is a very interesting case. As always, I, re I reserve judgment. Um, I always find these things interesting. And thanks again, Harry, for sending this to me. And you, as the listeners, be the judge of what you think. But uh, it is quite an interesting topic. And it's something that we're seeing more and more in the modern news media that these type of stories are getting out there and people are sharing them. So thanks so much, Harry, for sending that over to me. So, folks, I've got one more story here for you. And this is uh, on something that a lot of you who are into the paranormal and the unexplained will be 
big fans of. It's a very interesting and well-known case, and that is about the Diotlaw Pass incident in the USSR in the 50s. So uh, I will more than likely be covering at this topic at some point in the future. But again, folks, there's so many, and there's only so many days to get to them all. So I haven't got to it yet, obviously. So this one is from Coast to Coast, and this one is also uh, from Tim Benall. And this one says, Findings from new investigation into Dyatlov Pass incident announced. Russian officials have announced that their reopened investigation into the infamous Dyatlov Pass incident determined that an avalanche and subsequent hypothermia were to blame for the tragic event, but not everyone's convinced of the findings. The decision to take a fresh look at the curious case sparked headlines and excitement back in February of 2019 when it was announced in conjunction with the 60th anniversary of the eerie 1959 episode in which nine hikers in the Ural Mountains died under mysterious circumstances. Now, nearly 18 months later, the results of what was promised to be a rigorous study have been released to the public. While many had hoped that the new investigation would examine some of the more exotic suggestions for what had caused the incident, such as a Yeti attack or a weapons test gone wrong, it was made very clear early on in the process that only prosaic explanations would be explored. This was revealed at the start of the study when the lead investigator, Andrei Kurilikov, told reporters that all fantastic theories have been dropped and that it is absolutely out of the question that the event had any connection to a clandestine government operation. Therefore, it was not altogether surprising when Kirikov held a press conference this past weekend in Russia and indicated that the months-long investigation into the case had concluded that the hikers perished due to an unfortunate series of natural events. Detailing what he believed to be the group's fateful final hours, he explained that the injuries sustained by the young men and women were akin to those suffered by rock climbers caught in an avalanche. More specifically, Kirikov said when the hikers realized that their camp was about to be overwhelmed by snow, they fled the area to seek a safer shelter approximately a mile and a half away. Alas, this only compounded the predicament as the ill-equipped group lost sight of their tent due to poor visibility and ultimately succumbed to hypothermia over the course of the evening as they were battered by a blizzard as well as unsuccessful and sometimes injurious attempts to return to the camp under those perilous conditions. No doubt trying to close the book on the Diotlaw Pass incident once and for all, Kirikov declared that the avalanche theory has found its full confirmation via the new investigation. It was a heroic struggle. There was no panic, he mused, but they had no chance to save themselves under the circumstances. As one might imagine, the results of the investigation have already been called into question by long-time Dyatlov Pass researchers as it fails to answer a number of questions surrounding the case. Additionally, the decision to only look at natural events from the outset has raised suspicions that the new study is really a cover-up of the clandestine operations test theory. Sorry, clandestine weapons test theory. To that end, a group of independent researchers who have been looking into the case for the last 20 years expressed dismay at the findings and called for yet another official ex-investigation into the case. Considering that the Russian government has portrayed their conclusions as rather definitive, it's doubtful that the case will officially be reopened anytime soon or ever again, despite the misgivings of critics. Now, folks, this is a very contentious case, and there have been lots of instances in the past where the USSR and Russian governments have attempted to explain this case away. So you can understand why some people are very skeptical about, you know, these, you know, quote, official findings, unquote. So it is a very interesting case. It's a very interesting study. 
Now, it looks like there won't be a whole lot more coming out about it in the near future. So, you know, by the time I get to an, to an episode on it, who knows? There might be something new, but um, we shall see. So that is the news of the dam for this program, folks. I hope that you've enjoyed those articles. And as always, there will be links in the show notes. France has been one of the best places to find strange claims and ufological weirdness. I'd go so far as to say France is equal to the U.S. in the bizarre history of unlikely sightings of unusual creatures. France had the first known humanoid sightings wave back in 1954 that came to an end with over 200 alleged encounters involving more than 250 witnesses. Imagine minding your own business and being interrupted by little people with strange machines. The 1954 worldwide UFO wave, and especially centered in and around France and Western Europe, is one of the least covered and most interesting flaps in UFOlogical history. Sightings of UFO occupants have occurred steadily over the years, but they tend to increase during sighting waves. By far the most common type is the small humanoid wearing coveralls, and some type of headgear, usually a round or a helmet, helmet-shaped device. During close-range encounters with beings outside of their UFO craft, witnesses sometimes have heard unintelligible vocalizations and observed technological tools. They have been observed taking samples, repairing their craft, and engaged in numerous other activities. Some scattered reports of humanoid beings occurred in association with UFOs were made as early as 1947. However, the earliest wave of such sightings occurred in Europe late in 1954, primarily in France and Italy. Major U.S. publications like Life Magazine and The New Yorker reported the sightings, though inevitably with tongue-in-cheek commentary. The reported beings typically were between 3 to 4.5 feet, or 1 to 1.4 meters tall, and wore coveralls with round, translucent headgear resembling divers' helmets. Light beams or other electromagnetic energy from the craft or from the beings had effects on animals and frequently paralyzed human witnesses. At the same time, vehicle engines and headlights failed. Some sort of aerial craft, usually round or disc-shaped, was almost always observed. One of the first such reports came from Quarobel, France, near the Belgian border, on the evening of September the 10th, 1954. At around 10.30 p.m., Marius de Wilde, heard his dogs barking outside, and decided to see what was going on. On the nearby railroad track, only 20 feet away, he saw a dark mass. When he heard footsteps, he turned his flashlight onto the path, where he saw two very short beings, between three and four feet tall, wearing what he called diver suits. He approached to within a mere six feet, when a brilliant light came from the object on the tracks. This blinded and paralyzed him. The two creatures then moved towards the object. When the beam light went out, the wild continued to approach the track, but the object was now rising, giving off a thick dark steam and a low whistling sound. It glowed red, then it flew away. On the wooden railroad ties were found five imprints. Later calculations were that a 30-ton weight would have been necessary to produce these indents. Oddities continued to occur in the immediate aftermath of the incident. One of DeWild's dogs died just three days after the event, and DeWild himself began suffering from respiratory problems. Meanwhile, it was claimed that three cows in nearby farms were found dead, 
with subsequent examination revealing that their blood had been completely removed. On the same day, Antoine Mazaud, near Limoges, France, had an encounter with a creature apparently from a landed flying saucer. Other inhabitants of Limoges reported seeing, on the same evening, a reddish disc that left a bluish trail. Around three and a half weeks later, on October the 4th, a flying saucer allegedly landed in a field in saint saint le abbey France, near Dijon, and was seen by several people. This craft left an excavated hole in the ground. Next, French customs officer Gabriel Gachnard reported that a weird football-shaped object landed at the Marigon Airport in France on October the 26th or 27th of Next, folks, I'm going to read to you a synopsis of 12 cases ranging from September the 10th to October the 18th, 1954. I do apologize in advance as the way that some of these cases are written up are a bit herky-jerky. Also, some of these cases I've already covered, but I'm still just going to give you a brief rundown. So on September 10th, Antoine Mazad, he saw one being of average height with a helmet-like type of headgear exiting a cigar-shaped craft. The being confronted him, extended its arm, and touched him. The next case is from the 17th of September, and that was from Yves David Sinon in Vienne. And he saw one being smaller than a man. He was on a bicycle, and he felt shock paralysis, and he was touched on the shoulder by the being. It uttered unintelligible sounds, and then the object that it had come in uh, took off it had a green light as it flew off in the sky. That's how he described it. On the 26th of September, Mademoiselle Lebouf Chabiel from Drôme, France, said she saw one being that was approximately three feet tall, wearing what she called a diving suit with a helmet. It had large eyes. It arrived in a flat circular craft. Her dog barked. Upon being approached, she fled. And later she found a circle of crushed foliage where the craft had landed. On the 27th of September, Raymond Roman in, in Premenon, Jura, saw two beings. They had squarish legs, and they were quite boxy-type figures. He saw a fiery ball hovering over a meadow. Light from the barn reflected off of the being. One of the children threw pebbles that struck it with a metallic sound. They later found a 12-foot circle of flattened grass and imprints all at this site after the craft had left. On the 3rd of October, Bernard Divosin and René Codet in Ligens Court saw one child-sized being. Again, they described it as wearing a diver suit. It arrived in a glowing orange dome disc on the road. They were on bicycles. They approached, and then the being entered the craft and took off. Also on the 3rd of October, Angelo Gerardo, in Bressawir, saw one small figure, again described in a diver suit. He was on a bicycle. He said he found a 10-foot disc on the ground and the being next to it. He said he, as soon as the being saw him, it entered the craft and took off. On the 9th of October, Roger Baralt in Lavaux said he saw one four-and-a-half-foot tall being, again described it as wearing a diving suit. It had bright eyes, two lights on its chest. Again, he was on a bicycle. Uh, it was at dusk when he encountered the being, who disappeared into the woods. He didn't see a craft in this case. On the 9th of October as well, Gilbert Calda, 
uh, of 12 Puranoi La Che Leave in Moselle said he saw a four-foot-tall being wearing dark coveralls. It had large eyes. There were children roller skating, uh, and they saw a shiny round craft that landed near them. Okay, so he was 12, I understand. So Gilbert Caldo was 12, so that's why I was saying children roller skating. He saw a shiny round craft that landed near them, him and his friends that were roller skating. A being emerged, made an unintelligible sound, then ran away. On the 11th of October, Henry Galois and Louis Vigneron were in clemency in Nierve, and they saw three small figures. In route, they were en route to a fair. They felt shock, paralysis, the engine of their car and the lights failed, and then the beings entered a round craft and took off. Also on the 11th of October, three different motorists in Tapignac, uh, Charentier Maritime, saw four three-foot-tall beings. They stopped to watch the hovering disc, the drivers, uh, as it descended into the woods. Two of them entered the woods to investigate, saw the beings enter a dome disc and take off. On the 16th of October, Dr. Henry Robert Bellonet uh, in Seine Inferior saw one three-foot-tall being, one of four circular objects zigzagged down in front of a car. The witness felt shock. The engine and lights failed in the car and the being was visible in light from the UFO. On the 18th of October, Marie L. Bureau uh, from Saint-Poy-Dubes uh, saw one human in coveralls, two dwarf-like beings, a luminous object over the road. Uh, her motorcycle almost struck a human form, so obviously a creature in the road. It was later joined by small beings, and then the craft departed. Small footprints were later found. So some of these cases are quite fascinating, folks, and I'm sorry I've just got those basic rundowns, but that just gives you an idea of some of the trends in these cases. In nearly all of these cases, a craft, uh, almost always described as circular in nature, was seen. All of these creatures were no taller than four and a half feet tall. All, most all of these creatures were described as wearing a suit of some type. A diver suit uh, is the description in most of the cases. And also... In almost all of these cases, they saw the beings enter a craft and leave. Also, as you see here in many of these cases, the, the people were paralyzed. And it also seems that a lot of people in on motorcycles and bicycles and even child on roller skates came across these beings. So it's almost like they didn't hear them or they snuck up on them. And then the beings panicked a bit and took off. It's also quite interesting to see, straight out of Close Encounters of the Third Kind, the movie, You've got these cases of cars stalling, the lights failing, the, the engines not working. So look, these are some really fascinating cases. So now, ironically, a New Mexico police report in 1964 helped legitimize the French wave from 1954. Now, that case is one of the most fascinating cases I've ever heard of. It's one of the more famous cases, and that's the Lonnie Zamora case in New Mexico. So just to give you a brief synopsis here. Police officer Lonnie Zamora reported seeing two small humanoid beings standing next to a landed craft on April the 24th, 1964 in Socorro, New Mexico. Since Zamora was a well-known and respected officer, his report helped to legitimize 10 years of prior UFO occupant sightings that had been considered somewhat borderline by many people. His report made headlines nationally and to some degree internationally. 
A few revisionists have gone so far as to characterize these reports from 1954 in Europe as nothing more substantial than a flurry of misidentified lights in the sky. The characterization is that these poorly reported nocturnal lights then became elaborated into false reports of landings, car pursuits, and humanoid encounters as a result of the French press feeding a gullible public fabricated stories about Martians and other extraterrestrials in an attempt to sell more newspapers. Now, it is true that most of what we do know about the 1954 UFO wave is based upon press reports, but while there certainly were scattered hoaxes, one gets the overall impression that the tone of the stories appeared to have been matter-of-fact reporting of eyewitness accounts. In rereading the published accounts, it becomes apparent that there was a serious attempt to understand what was going on, and there doesn't seem to be any hint of ridicule, nor such questioning of the sincerity or sanity of the witnesses. Follow-up investigations by UFO investigators years later further suggest that there is not much to base such an allegation on. The only real ridicule here was pointedly uh, you know, covered over by the U.S. press when these stories were printed in the magazines in the U.S., the New Yorker, and I think it was Life magazine off the top of my head that I mentioned earlier. The 1954 UFO wave is generally known as the first large-scale European UFO wave, and especially a wave dominated by French reports. It was first popularized by Aime Michel's book, A, Pro A Propos des Sucops Volantes, which was translated into English and published in 1958 as Flying Saucers and the Straight Line Mystery. However, it would be more correct to say that the UFO wave was worldwide in nature, because nearly 42% of the UFO sightings were made from locations outside of Europe. Monthly distribution of UFO reports in 1954 by European country. Europe had more than 58% of all the reports for that year, so it is correct to regard 1954 as the year that Europe, and particularly France, first became well acquainted with the UFO phenomenon. Of the 1,756 European UFO reports in 1954, 1,159, or 66%, came from France. This is followed by Italy, 7.9% of cases, Austria and Switzerland, 7.7% of cases, Great Britain, 6.4% 6 .6, of cases, Spain and Portugal at 3.4%, Germany at 2.2%, Belgium at 2.0%, and four Scandinavian countries led by Sweden at 2.1%. Of those in the other category, 13 reports, including 11 for the month of October, came from Yugoslavia. So as you can see, most of these cases that were cited in Europe came from Western Europe. On October the 3rd, 1954, there were 84 UFO and humanoid reports recorded in UFO CAT for this day. There was one from India, one from Lebanon, one from Quebec, one from Switzerland, two each from England and Italy, and three from Austria. The rest were all from France, which was most definitely the center of activity on that day. There were four humanoid reports and all of them involved small spheres, cones, or disc-shaped crafts, and dwarvish UFO knots who were between 0.9 to 1 meter tall, wearing diving suits. The first occurred at 12.15 a.m. in Nivelles, Nord, France. A 20-year-old metallurgist, Marcel Senchal, witnessed a spherical object 3 meters in diameter land in a meadow near a canal. Two 1 meter tall beings were seen talking to each other. Their heads were very large, and they wore luminous suits. The second occurred at dawn, when Angelo Gerardo, a 55-year-old stockyard worker, was going to work in Bressier du Severs, France. 
he saw a three-meter diameter circular craft with a small figure wearing a diving suit standing close by. The object took off at a fantastic speed. The third humanoid report occurred at 6.45 p.m. René Coudet and B. Devosin were riding bicycles with a third witness between Rue and Quend, Somme, France, on Route D-27, near the village of Vron, when they saw a glowing orange object, shaped like a beehive, on the road ahead of them. A small, strange man, wearing a diving suit about 0.9 meters, or 3 feet tall, was standing close to it. When they got within 70 meters of it, the object took off very fast. Less than three hours later, the same or a very similar orange object chased a car down a road in Quinn for eight kilometers, then flew away towards the sea. The witness was a butcher named Georges Gallant. The fourth humanoid report occurred later that night and did not involve a UFO sighting. A young baker's apprentice, S. Pouchet, was approached by two small shadowy beings, about three feet tall, in Merquillon, Nord, France. There were also several other close encounter reports on October the 3rd not involving humanoids. At 7.20 p.m., the crowd at a fair in Chereng, Nord, France, saw a luminous object in the sky that arrived very quickly, stopped in mid-flight, emitted sparks, and finally came down to ground level. As witnesses rushed to the spot, it took off again. At 10.45 p.m., a small circular craft was seen rising from the roadside by Mr. Jean Allaire, age 22, while riding a motorcycle, between Montereau and villebois lavalette Clarent, France. It seemed to be gliding over the ground. It showed luminous spots and became completely illuminated when it took off. It stood about 1.2 meters high. Grass was found flattened and scorched over an area 7 meters across. Finally, near La Rochelle, France, at 11 p.m., Mr. and Mrs. Guillemotet saw an object 5 meters in diameter and 2.5 meters high hovering for several minutes, 1 meter above the ground. The UFO then rose vertically. Oily marks were found at the spot. In summary, these reports were consistently similar and consisted of relatively small objects that were orange or luminous. On October the 14th, 1954, during the second peak date of this flap, there was a greater diversity of reports, both in the size and types of objects and the types of humanoids reported. There was one UFO report from Kenya, one from Morocco, two from Thailand, two from Sweden, an important aerial encounter from England, three close encounters from Italy, and a close encounter of the third kind report from Iran. In general, the reports are more bizarre and the encounters are closer, more direct, and more confrontational. For instance, there were three reports of vehicle ignition interference caused by UFOs, and it has long been theorized that these car stoppage events are deliberate acts and not the byproduct of the UFO's propulsion systems. The concentration of reports had shifted to the east and south, with the most occurring in the Mediterranean departments of Gard, Vaucluse, Alpes de Haute-Provence, Bush du Rhône, Var, and Alpes Maritimes, but with a second concentration further north in saint en loire Ain, Côte d'Or, and Jura departments. Of the humanoid reports, there continued to be reports of little men, but there was also one report of a stocky, hairy dwarf and another entity that, although short, had a more human appearance. At 6.30 a.m. in Shamisbad, Iran, a man was coming out of his house when he saw a luminous object like a bright star. When he got close, he saw that it was a five-meter-long object, next to which a short young man was standing on a circular piece of metal, laughing at the witness's terrified expression. Think of it almost as the Green Goblin in the uh, Spider-Man movies, folks. 
The witness was 20 meters away when the craft took off at an unbelievable speed. In the southeastern France, several witnesses in saint ambrieu Guard, France, saw seven small beings flee into a luminous object when they were approached. It took off immediately. It was claimed that unknown seeds were found at the site. Now that's quite interesting. At 3.30 p.m., in Ershin Wood in Liward, northern France, a miner named Casimir Stravosky met a short, bulky figure with large slanted eyes. Its body was covered with fur. It also had a flat nose and thick lips. Landings were also prominent on October the 14th, 1954. At 12.15 a.m., five kilometers north of Nîmes, France, Mr. and Mrs. Dupois saw an object shaped like a rugby ball resting on crutch-like landing gear. It was lit by a greenish light and had three portholes. At 3.40 a.m., a brilliant yellow machine in the shape of a mushroom, two meters in height and four meters in diameter, was seen resting on railroad tracks in St. Pierre Halt by a baker's assistant from Calais. At dusk, around 6 p.m., a farmer in Angles, Vendée, Department, France, saw a bright object which came almost to the ground. When he tried to approach it, the object produced an intense screen of light and vanished without a sound. Several other persons in Anglais also observed the scene. At around 7 p.m., Monsieur Duvier, a farmer in Moral, Mayenne, France, observed an orange sphere land and he walked out to approach it. When he got close, he found it was shaped like a flattened dome, five and a half meters in diameter, and it gave off a blinding light, which illuminated the countryside for about 200 meters. It was also transparent, and a dark figure could be seen inside. After remaining at ground level for 10 minutes, it left by flying to the north, while a bright, cloudy, misty material fell slowly to the ground at the site. When the witness arrived home, he found that his clothes were covered with a white film of adhesive substance, not unlike paraffin wax. Just after dark, around 7 p.m., in Saint-Germain-du-Bois, Monsieur Longeret observed a luminous cylinder object, sorry, luminous circular object, that was orange, and it was sitting on the ground near a cornfield off the highway D91. At 8.50 p.m., an engineer, Monsieur G. Moulion from Genelard, was driving between Cyril le nobel and Montecu-les-Mines, saint en lorraine when he witnessed an enormous luminous object that descended towards the ground without any noise. UFO reports involving car buzzings and vehicle electrical interference were reported several times as well. At 6.15 p.m., a municipal employee, Jose Casella, was riding home in Bio Alpes Maritimes, France, when he suddenly found an oval-shaped aluminium-covered object, colored object, about five and a half meters in diameter in front of him on the road, one meter high. As he applied his brakes, the object took off at a very rapid speed. Several persons confirmed the sighting. The object was described as a gray dome disc that emitted a soft whistling noise. When it took off, the witness was only six meters away. In Chazé Wood, south of Guguemont, at 7.30 p.m., Messieurs Jeanette and Garnier saw a reddish fireball fly low over their car as their engine and headlights died. Again, a short time later in Chazé Wood, André Cognard, who was coming from Guguignon, was blinded by a light from a luminous, disc-shaped object as it flew low over his car. The projected light beam was so bright and blinded and blinding that he was forced to stop his car. Between Saint-Romain-sur-Gonard and Les Brossetillots, a motorcyclist saw a similar craft shaped like an upside-down plate just after dark.
At the same time, the engine on his motorcycle stalled. After watching it for some time, he pushed the motorcycle down the road where it could be restarted. In the same area, an engineer also saw a luminous object coming down rapidly. At 8.10 p.m. on the road between Thuloroy, Laville, and Bervais, Somme, Mijir Kovermacher saw an object fly over his car as his headlights died. It went on towards the north, seemingly following a train. To summarize, the occurrences on the two peak dates appear to be part of the same general phenomenon. There is no convincing support for the hypothesis that there might have been two different courses, sources, or causes for these reports. So we need to look elsewhere for an explanation or why there were two crests in UFO activity. However, the events of the 3rd of October tended to consistently involve small-sized objects and little men, whereas the close encounters of the 14th of October involved a greater diversity of more confrontational encounters, including stoppages of automobiles and at least one motorcycle, and quite often larger objects. Indeed, in one case, the object was described as enormous. Now, there is a correlation of the day of the week. There's a noticeable difference in the number of reports by the day of the week, with a significantly lower number of reports for Tuesdays and Wednesdays, and a higher number of reports occurring on Thursdays and Mondays. The tally of European reports by day of the week for an 11-week period from Sunday, September the 12th to 1954 to Saturday, November the 27th, 1954, shows a heavy correlation on these two days of the week. Why was the number of reports significantly higher on Mondays and Thursdays? Perhaps the weather was better and the viewing conditions were clearer on these days. We would need to go back and check the weather reports for the period to find out for sure. Orthoteny, or the straight line mystery, was first discovered by the French UFO researcher and mathematician A. Michel. Before 1954, like most students of UFOs, Michel was discouraged by the sporadic and unpredictable nature of UFO sightings. In his book published in 1958, Michel explained that the situation changed dramatically during the worldwide 1954 UFO wave. From mid-August to mid-November 1954, Michel found that many of the sightings were located along great circle routes, which, when transferred onto flat maps of the areas involved, amounted to straight lines. He began his study by plotting five high strangeness reports, all of which occurred on Friday, October 15, 1954. The sightings were in such widely separated points as Southend in England, Pas-de-Calais, Air-sur-la-Lys in France, a site on Route N68 close to the German border, and Pau-de-Noca in Italy. Michel marked these five in a great circle line 700 miles long. So he found that if you took these and stretched a thread between the five points, then you found a 700-mile-long line, which is about you know, over a thousand kilometers. When the same sightings were plotted on appropriate maps of the areas involved, adjusted to account for the slight curvature of the earth over the 700 miles, the five points lay on a straight line. Thus, M. Michel's technique of orthantenny was born. The word orthantenny is derived from the Greek adjective orthenonis, which means stretched in a straight line. Of course, straight lines can easily be outfitted to any three points in a row because of the uncertainty or wiggle room of the exact location of the witnesses or UFOs involved. But Michel, being a mathematics teacher, was aware that a five-point straight line between UFO sighting locations on the same date was far beyond coincidence. Through successive plotting of multi-sightings on other days between the 1954 wave, Michel found many other multi-point straight lines, primarily in France and neighboring countries. From these results, 
he developed a hypothesis that the UFOs might be using a grid work surveillance pattern during their appearances and were traveling or manifesting along straight lines because this was the most logical manner of surveillance. Michel also found evidence of an additional phenomenon. At the intersection of these orthogenetic lines, the object sightings were invariably of the class of UFO known as cloud cigars. These huge cloud-enshrouded ellipsoidal forms from which smaller glowing or metallic disks departed and into which they returned were always viewed in their motionless mode where two or more straight lines intersected at a sighting location. The most striking example of this phenomenon occurred on September the 2nd, 1954, when nine multipoint straight lines of French UFO sightings intersected at Poncy, France. Michel theorized that the cloud cigars were aggregations of UFOs, in other words, a type of carrier craft mechanism which provided a rallying point for smaller disks which performed the surveillance maneuvers along the grid work lines. As the years passed after Michel's initial study, the theory of orthoteny was argued pro and con in the UFO literature, and other researchers extended the major orthotenic lines to other continents such as Africa and North and South America. So this gives you a good background of what was going on in Europe in the mid-50s through uh, this next case in 1965. You know, quite fascinating, all these different types of sightings. There's quite a variation in the crafts, the occupants, and the people who were actually doing the sightings. So look, it's, it's a really fascinating flap and quite an interesting wave of UFOs that I hadn't heard a whole lot about. So hopefully, folks, you've taken some great value in that. Now, to anyone listening who speaks French, I'm sorry for butchering any of the place names or people's names. I'm doing my best, though. So, my friends, that should give you a very good background of what was going on in Europe and especially in France and Western Europe uh, in and around this next case, which is the famous 1965 Valençol case. Now, this case has been held up uh, as an example by many in the UFO community, especially in Europe. Uh, the largest proponent would be Jacques Vallée, who is one of the most famous ufologists and is well known for his exacting investigations into such cases. This is not a guy who just takes people at their words. He really takes his time, goes into it, and investigates them. And Jacques Vallée has considered this one of the most compelling cases that he's ever studied. So during the last week of June in 1965, Maurice Moss and his father-in-law had noticed that the lavender beds that they farmed were being disturbed during the night. Nothing significant, but just the buds of some of the plants had been pulled off and scattered around. Now, Maurice was a well-experienced farmer who had lived in the area his whole life, and he had never seen any creature cause damage to the lavender buds in this manner. Whatever was the case, Maurice was alert to find out what was causing the disturbance, but he wasn't losing a lot of sleep over it. At around 5.45 a.m. on July the 1st, 1965, near the French village of Valençol, located in the Alpes de Haute, Provence, France, farmer Maurice Moss was smoking a cigarette behind a pile of fertilizer and his tractor when he heard a whistling noise that began and ended nearby. When an object came out of the sky and landed in his lavender field about 200 feet away, he saw a small egg-shaped craft which he described as dauphin-shaped, which is the size of a small French car, sitting on his field while two, uh, two little people were trespassing in his lavender crops. Well, they were trampling away and picking his flowers, so he decided to approach them. Annoyed, he assumed that a helicopter had made an unauthorized landing in his field, and he walked towards it. 
However, Maurice soon saw it was no helicopter, but an oval-shaped structure on six curved legs and some type of central pivot. Through an opening in the craft, he thought he could see two back-to-back -back seats. As Moss approached the children, now with a much closer view, the children were not children at all, but strange-looking beings. Moss described them as having large, bald heads, pasty faces, and huge slanted eyes that stared out at him. He also related that they were wearing gray-green coveralls of some sort, without any type of breathing devices, and one of them was holding a tube-like device, standing by an odd-looking craft. Their heads were oversized and with sharp chins, and they were making a grumbling noise. One of the beings then pointed the tube-like device at Moss, and he was paralyzed in his tracks. The being put his weapon down and began to discuss with, discuss with his companion. Although lying on the ground, Moss remained fully conscious, noting that as they looked at him with what he later described as concerned expressions, they made strange gurgling sounds from deep within their throats as they communicated with one another. This allowed Moss to observe the beings better. They were just ab above one meter high. Their skin was smooth, slightly white, and apparently not covered by any hair or coat, so as in an animal coat. Their head was big, with almost no neck, and their eyes were just like human ones, despite the absence of eyelids. Moss said he watched the beings looking at his plants and making grunting sounds for several minutes. While the beings kept on discussing in an unknown language, Maurice says he felt somewhat tranquilized. The beings then got in the object, and through a transport cupola, the man could see both of them seated at the controls. The object climbed about a meter off the ground, and then flew towards some hills, and then suddenly accelerated and disappeared. Maurice needed about 20 minutes to recover his mobility. He saw they'd left a hole in the ground, and four equidistant markings where the vehicle's landing gear had been. He also thought he could discern a dried-out effect in the lavender plants in the area where the object had been, and in the direction of its departure. In its wake, the object left a deep hole and a moist area that soon hardened like concrete. Plants in the vicinity decayed, and later analysis found a higher amount of calcium at the landing site than elsewhere in the fields. He went into Valensole, and still shaken, he told his friend, the owner of a cafe, what had just happened. The story was later told to the local gendarme, which is the police in France, who went to the field and confirmed the markings in the central hole. They interrogated Moss and had to accept that he believed what he said and there were no more to be said on the matter. Our poor farmer returned home and slept for 15 hours straight, only being woken up by his wife and daughter because they were so worried about him. Unsurprisingly, a small storm had been building during the night, and by now the locals and the local press had become interested in his story. The news traveled fast, and within three days, it had made, it, it had made the national press in France and traveled as far afield as Washington, D.C. Moss took to his heels and left the area to get away from the persistent journalists and the mockery being sent his way. With his reputation and standing in the area, neighbors and the media didn't believe that he was hoaxing. The gendarme didn't think he was a hoaxer either. Instead, they believed an explanation must lie somewhere else. Some of these explanations might seem familiar to some of you who follow the UFO phenomenon. The local Air Force claimed he had seen one of their helicopters landing, although they themselves knew nothing about a helicopter landing anywhere in the vicinity. The commander of the gendarme of Valençol, after having recorded the account of Mr. Moss, came down to note on the premises that his apparatus had left traces on the spot, an opening of 20 centimeters in diameter by 80 centimeters in depth. In addition, in Port St. Louis, 
A fisherman stated to have seen, on that Thursday, around three hours in the morning, a green gleam in the direction of Valens Hole. The military circles announced that several helicopters, which take part in the operations, had certainly on occasion flown over Valens Hole and perhaps had landed in the vicinity. The Washington Post claimed he'd misperceived a mundane example of French secret technology. The Post explained the incident as being caused by a number of factors. Firstly, it was a slow news week and anything would get published. Secondly, the weather wasn't extremely hot, or sorry, the weather was extremely hot and ripe for hallucination. Thirdly, it was dawn and easy to misidentify things. Finally, it was a secret French prototype that had landed in Major Moss's field, a Schnechma C450-01 colon Pirtir. Unfortunately, it's broad daylight at 5.30 a.m. in July, and the awesome-looking Colin Pertier was abandoned as a death trap by 1959. So the military didn't have any in service in 1965, and this is a full six years after they stopped using them. Now, as fast as the excitement had begun, it was over within days. In the village, the affair was already spent. The gendarme, harassed with questions during two days, found peace again, and dealt with the more common affairs of the town. As for the author of the account, Monsieur Moss, certain inhabitants of Valençol firmly dissuaded reporters to meet with him. This man is said to be since yesterday morning in a state of nervous breakdown. The disturbing news was confirmed to us by several trusted witnesses. So this is an account of a reporter who was trying to interview him. Moreover, at no time, did any reporter indulge in considering the people who have some knowledge of this case, by near or far, as having been credulous? We have quite simply, as our mission of informers requires, acted with prudence. Our duty did not force us to exploit a case unashamedly that now is afflicting a man and a whole family who would have done better without all the troubles caused by the noisy pu publicity. So this was from Le Merindonal, France. So this was one of the French publications. And they're basically saying that some of the people in the town are saying that, you know, it was made up or a hoax. But, you know, the paper in and of itself is saying, well, why? What has he had to gain from it? And surely this publicity has not done him any good. In fact, he's trying to stay in hiding in his house. Four days after the encounter, Moss began to experience bouts of profound drowsiness, which caused him to require more than 12 hours of sleep every day for the next several months. In the following weeks, Moss was approached by more journalists and UFO researchers. His case eventually landed up in the famous Cometo report as a strong example of an unusual event. They noted that the lavender had failed to grow in the area in subsequent years. Moss never retracted his story, and it generally remained intact and without embellishment over the years. One element that intrigued researchers is the fact that Moss kept a part of the incident to himself and wouldn't reveal it to anyone. It was a secret. We can only guess at what the secret was. Moss told his wife and daughter, and that was all. Maybe he made up the story and he couldn't believe how far it had gotten out of hand. Maybe it was a genuine case of visiting folks from elsewhere. Or maybe he thought he experienced something that only occurred on the level of perception, like a dream. If it was a dream, was it triggered by something we know about or from somewhere else? He once remarked that the small fellows were good people. He had a conviction that they meant no harm. Now, this is interesting because he didn't include details of communication with them. A year earlier in the U.S., Gary Wilcox had a very similar experience. Mr. Wilcox was also a farmer, and he'd been surprised to find two little guys in his field, 
next to a small egg-shaped craft. These two apparently told him a secret and asked him to keep it. There wouldn't be much that we could say about these little men, but one detail strikes me particularly. All who have approached them, so far as I know, and M. Moss has affirmed it to me forcibly several times, believe invincibly in their benevolence towards ourselves. They are good. They have only good intentions towards us. Of that I am sure. But how do you know that? I asked. I can't tell you. I don't know how I know, but I'm sure of it. Is this a psychological conditioning connected with the effect of the weapon? Or more simply, is it the truth? On this too, there would be much that one could say. So that's an extract from the Flying Saucer Review, and that's some of the comments, uh, you know, when someone was asking Mr. Moss about this. According to his wife, Moss said he had received some kind of communication from the beings. He considered his encounter a spiritual experience, and he looked upon the site as hallowed ground that should be kept in the family forever. UFOlogists consider Moss's claim significant and cite landing year impressions found in the soil. During one interview, Maurice was shown a drawing representative of an object that had landed in Socorro, New Mexico the previous year. The object had been seen by policeman Lonnie Zamora, who later made a sketch of it. Moss remarked, someone else has seen my UFO. Moss reported his encounter in detail to local authorities, including the mayor of Valensol, his parish priest, and the gendarme. Days later, the lavender began to inexplicably die within five to six meters from the spot where the UFO landed. The effects from the incident were still felt for eight to ten years after the incident. Moss was a farmer in the Valenzuel area and had a very good reputation in town. He'd been in the French resistance as a marquee guerrilla fighter during World War II, and that had attracted a lot of respect. Local farmer Paul Balea also reported seeing a saucer-shaped flying vehicle zooming through the sky soon after Moss's encounter. This case, which Jacques Vallée described as the best authenticated close encounter incident in continental Europe, includes not only hard traces, botanical data, and physiological data, but detailed descriptions of beings associated with the UFO. It came to be known as the Valence Old Case. Not only is it one of the most thoroughly investigated close encounters on record, but the examination by French government agencies began on the day of the event. Famous UFO writer and researcher Dr. Jacques Vallée, returning to the scene of the incident in 1979 and meeting with Maurice Moss and two of his close friends, makes a number of interesting observations. He notes that Moss was reluctant to give all the details of his experience to investigators as well as to his own family at the time, including the fact that he believed that there was some sort of silent communication which took place between himself and the beings. From the beginning, he wanted to minimize the impact of the experience. He didn't want publicity, amongst other reasons. Like many experiencers of this phenomenon, he had changed in many ways as a result of the experience, including the belief that some form of contact, once established, continued in subtle forms. Belay concludes, Throughout these discussions with Mr. Moss, I had the feeling that I was in the presence of a very intelligent man, capable of deep emotions and rational thought. He is also quite humble. He has declined to appear on a television documentary with a nationally known journalist. Bellet said he had also brought with him a photograph of similar traces left after another case. Mr. Moss looked at them, and he looked at Vallée with a mixture of amazement and relief that someone else was aware of these particular marks. He told Vallée that he sometimes found them in his field, and that's how he knows that they have, st have come back and they still visit. 
He always erases the traces immediately. So look, folks, it's, it's really interesting here. And this is a little known fact that a lot of people who study these cases carefully will find out. Oftentimes, experiencers, uh, which is one term used for them in the UFO field, uh, you know, there is a ongoing experience that the beings come back, they visit them, and oftentimes these people don't want to be laughed at, ridiculed, or there may be other reasons behind it, but they tend to cover this up. Oftentimes, once they've gone public, they keep it quiet after that if they do experience further further sightings or interactions with these beings. So this is another second tier of evidence here, the fact that he would go and cover up these marks in the fields when he sees them come again. Now, here are some other thoughts and theories on this case. One theory is that for whatever reason, that these creatures baited uh, Moss by messing with his crop, knowing that it would cause him to respond or come looking for them. He does find the lavender bushes messed up. He comes out the next day and closely approaches them, which is exactly what they were waiting for. They zap him, abduct him, and then return him to the same spot, again for whatever their reason may be. The man reports later that he was standing there watching the craft, and the next minute it was just gone. Insert missing time here. He is numb for some time after. He is tired, and he sleeps a lot. Even he says there is something he is not telling, but it's, he's also sure they mean no harm. It is curious, and it does make you wonder what happened to him during that missing time, if there was missing time. Because again, you've got to remember at this time in the 40s and 50s, missing time really wasn't a phenomenon that was discussed. It was only with the Betty and Barney Hill abduction case in, I want to say, 1961 is when this started really getting discussed. Now, it's also intriguing that investigators suggest that Moss didn't tell the whole story. Many feel that Moss had a longer, more direct interaction and communication with the occupants and that the ship would sometimes return over the years, as I say, and he wouldn't tell anyone about it. Maybe they asked him to keep what was going on a secret. It's long been theorized that Mazir Moss had ongoing, if not frequent, ongoing visitations after the initial case in 1965. Whatever may be the truth, he took it to his grave and the only two people who knew have never discussed it further, that being his wife and daughter. So what do we have here? What to make of that 1954 wave that was so fascinating and so many people around the globe had interactions with crafts and beings? Was it hundreds of people hallucinating? Was it a few genuine cases, with many others claiming that they saw things? Are there more mundane explanations? What about Monsieur Moss? He was a very well-known and trusted member of the French resistance in World War II in the area. He was considered by everyone who knew him to be trustworthy and not the type to make up wild tales. He gained nothing of value from the case, and he certainly didn't become rich or famous. As always, the truth seems to be frustratingly just out of grasp. So many excellent sightings in this time, and little if any physical evidence has, has led many to claim it was all a giant hoax. I, for one, am far from convinced of that. And I hope that one day we have a better understanding of what happened in these early European cases. As always, you be the judge of this evidence. So, folks, I hope that you found it quite interesting. It is one of the more well-known cases, especially in Europe. And as I say, any case that Jacques Vallée spends so much time investigating definitely has more to it than lights in the sky or swamp gas or kids with a Chinese lantern. 
with that, folks, I hope that you have a great week. I hope that you enjoy your time. And I'd like to leave you with a quote from Art Bell, as always. And that quote is that a mind should not be so open that the brain falls out. However, it should not be so closed that whatever gray matter which does reside within may not be reached. Take care, folks, and I'll talk to you soon.